What's up, everyone? We just wanted to let you know that this February, we are celebrating Black History Month all month long. Every week, we will be focusing on a different piece of Black history as it relates to creators in film and literature. So let us know if there's one you want to hear about, if there is a piece that is near and dear to you, something that you think maybe we would like to know. Please get in contact with us at IlliteratePod on Instagram. And let us know what you want to hear. All right, on to this week. Welcome, everyone. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie. This week, we are covering, for Black History Month, the illustrious Shaft franchise. This is going to be the coolest episode we've ever done, Taylor. Our chill is Shaft. on nine. Shaft! <laughs> we are covering the uh, amazing Shaft franchise uh, starting in 1971. They had a recent entry uh, into the franchise in 2019 with several sequels along the way. Guess what? It's based on a book. It's one of the most influential um, black pieces of media. And we are going to uncover the veil here today. Like Evan said, came out summer of 71 released by MGM, and it helped them, as the lore goes, get out of financial ruin. It was one of only three successful uh, films of theirs that year. Good Lord. And it, it started the black exploitation genre, which we'll talk about. Made it also the first for many things in black Hollywood, the it's first the black action hero. It's the kindling yeah. that got it all going. The first black studio director, many other things. Jumping right in, where is this sitting in film history and literature history? The detective genre, huge in the 60s. Paul Newman as Harper, Frank Sinatra in a Tony Rome. And then he's also in, we talked about this in our Die Hard thing, The Detective was that first book that right. was yes. what Die Hard. Dirty Harry is going to come out in 71. So that's what's popping. Getting into the 70s, we're looking at, at a particular African-American answer to the genre. And directed by very famous photographer Gordon Parks, who we mentioned in our Lovecraft Country episode, Ooh. because of a lot of the iconography and visuals they used for that show were directly pulled from his famous yeah. photographs. So I wanted to start with a profile on him, since I knew nothing about him except for that, and how he came to be the director of this iconic film. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm primed. Here we go. He was born not alive. He was stillborn. Whoa. No heartbeat. Was declared dead and put aside as an infant. This is 1912 in Kansas. Another doctor, though, had an idea and immersed him in ice water, which caused his heart to start beating. Oh, my gosh. That doctor was named Dr. Gordon, who saved his life. So he was named after that doctor, and he became Gordon Parks. Wow. Oh my God. And he lived 93 years after that and was a famous photographer, filmmaker, poet, music composer as well. One of the pioneers for the, for the that would be pioneers for the black community. He, uh, just some of the prejudices against him. He, there was a school teacher who said to the all black class that he was in, you'll all wind up porters and maids. He remembers that vividly from Good his Lord. autobiography. Oh my he was God. Thrown, into, thrown into a river to drown at 11 years old by a bunch of other white 11-year-old boys. Oh, my God. His mom died at, when he was 14 and so then was moved to his aunt's house in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then they turned him out on the street at 15. Oh, my God. So he had many odd jobs, was homeless, was a piano player at a brothel, 
eventually became a porter and said, I can't, I can't be this. His, he, his mom, in his autobiography, his mom told him, quote, what a white boy can do, you can do too, and no excuses. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be any of this, what they think I am capable of. So at 25 years old, he bought a used camera from a pawn shop and taught himself how to take photographs. The quote from him on this, he said, it was to become my weapon against poverty and racism. Wow. And so he leaned into it wholeheartedly. Photography is what he's most known for. I loved this chain of events of him building his reputation because he just was practicing on his own and got the film developed. And the film developer told him to seek a fashion assignment at a woman's store in Minneapolis because they saw his photographs and said, oh, these are good. You should do something with this. Wow. So he he does that fashion assignment. And then those photographs caught the eye of Marva Lewis, who was the wife of the boxing champ, Joe Lewis, at the time. Oh, really? And so then she reached out to him and she said, you got to move to Chicago and photograph things there. Like, this isn't where it's happening. Go there. So then he moved there and began photographing society women and the African-American experience. (laughs) He moved there with his wife and then got a fellowship in Chicago, which then got him to be asked to join the Farm Security Administration, which was chronicling the nation's social conditions at the time because of the Great Depression. So he traveled all around. So on on that that, suggestion, he moves and immediately finds traction. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, he's that good. She was right. Um, but but <laughs> starting even from the from before that, from the film, the guy developing film at the at the drugstore. Yeah, whatever. man. So these folks are pushing him along. One of the things, the famous photo, which I'll post a link to, which got him the most praise and criticism was uh, it's called American Gothic Washington D.C. and it was a part of this Farm Security Administration. It was in their building in DC and this gal Ella Watson was one of the cleaning crew and like the famous American Gothic painting that has the the old white farm couple and they got the pitchfork and the and the barn in the background mm-hmm. this is this uh black woman who like i said was a part of the cleaning crew and she's got a mop and a broom and it's the american flag behind them because he was seeing all the racism that was going on in DC when he was working there wow and this is in the 40s so this yeah. is very very against what people would think he should be photographing or statements that he should be making. That's exactly um, why he has to do it. Yeah. If anybody's yeah. telling you that's, you can't take, no, that's exactly what needs documented. That's exactly what <laughs> needs something commented on. It needs to be put out there to be said about. Cause who else is going to take a picture of Ella Watson? Are you, you saying know, she doesn't, the, you know, are you saying that doesn't happen? Didn't exist. That's essentially when to turn the other eye. I mean, essentially, when you're talking about art form, and then in in the 40s, um, you know, today we live in the information age where I send a photo to 12 people right now from my pocket. It's there. Uh, it, it's this is weaponized. Uh, the power yeah. of the press, the power of the media. I mean, the, these if you can get traction, it's a big deal because there are not very many avenues in which to get it out there. And like we said with his quote, it was to become my weapon against poverty and exactly. racism. So he's using it for that. He moved to the Office of War Information because World War II is happening, and he photographed the 332nd Fighter Group, the Tuskegee Airmen. Wow, which we talked about. Yes, I don't know in what episode, but we but we mentioned we that. definitely Maybe did. We absolutely did. Yeah, yeah. And then he moved to the Standard Oil Photography Project in New Jersey, where he's photographing small towns and industrial centers in the late 40s. Um, so he's just all over the country honing his craft. 
1944, he's continuing to do, like he started with the fashion photography. He becomes uh, the only black photographer for Vogue in 1944. Oh my gosh. And then in 48, becomes the first black photographer at Life magazine, which is hard, like Evan was saying, oh, I can I can post a, a picture to 12 people. But like, this is the most prestigious magazine, yeah, and especially for photography. This yeah, is how this people is, as a saw. photographer, I don't know that you could, I mean, what is, at, at that age, at that, at that point in time, what is, what is a higher achievement almost? I mean, my God. Than Life magazine. And he worked yeah. for them for over 20 years, over 300 assignments. It's a, it's a dream come true now to just <laughs> to be clear. It's a dream, like, that's an amazing thing now, but to, but that role as it stacks against the, the, the information and technology that is around us all the time and in our pockets, that role compared now looks, you know, Oh, that's an, a, re- a neat job in 1948. Th- th- there's nothing out there like it. This is, I mean, this is this is a a absolute dream come true. It's a very, really important to contextualize exactly like how big and how fast this all happened. He he kept doing. He he had over 300 assignments with them. A lot of which uh, were places and actions that people did not want to photograph, but he did anyway. So he reported on segregation in Alabama in '56. The Nation of Islam movement in the 60s, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. One of his photo essays was titled How It Feels to Be Black, because white people had no idea how black Americans lived. Yeah. And so a lot of his stuff is not just the boycotts and the brutality, but all the details of people's inner lives. There was a famous, I'll post a link to all this stuff, but uh, there was a 56 photo essay titled The Restraints Open and Hidden. And that was like where a lot of the, the Lovecraft country mm. iconography comes to be seeing. Um, yeah. What it actually looks like in that time period, if you're black, this is bringing um, to mind um, loving uh, the couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you aren't familiar with loving, that it's an amazing story about a uh, interracial couple facing prejudice uh, from the government. Uh, Life photo, uh, Life magazine comes to document them and put their photographs out for the for the world to see. And it's a re- it's an mm-hmm. amazing. Um, it, it's one of the best examples I, of a of I think what a photographer does and why they do it. Uh, if you if yeah if, if that job seems a little bit distant to you or 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 if you, you know, it's just pretty pictures. I mean, the, the scene in Loving does I think really illustrates very beautifully and very quietly what a an amazing photographer. I think he's played by. Michael Shannon, uh, it, it, but it makes me think of Parks here, um, evoking that what a fantastic photographer does, mm-hmm. and, and how that job works, and, and and why they tell the stories they tell. And he continues not just in photography, but at, at the opening of the show, I said he had he was all these other things as well. So he branches out into writing, and he wrote a novel called The Learning Tree, which came out in 1969. And it is an autobiographical account, but it's a novel, it's fictionalized, but covering his rough Kansas childhood and all the stuff that went on in the early 1900s. Mm. And so if you hate reading, Warner Brothers expressed interest in it, and he made the stipulation that he would be the one to direct it because he knows how to move in circles and and be the yeah. guy in the scene. And so oh, he yeah. became... He became the first African American to direct a film for a major studio. Wow, that's also on his. Claim I mean, by and, and look at that by just stating the humanity of it. I'm a, I can direct this because I've been, and I can show you why. That's it, mm-hmm. and it's his life. Like I said, it's it's based on his life. So they also shot back in Fort Scott, Kansas, where he grew up. 
which is also crazy. So I'll post a link to the trailer for that. But that, if you if you were interested in his life and his upbringing, there is a literal film about it that wow. he made. Oh my about gosh! His life. The interesting thing also, he's multifaceted. He, like I said, he wrote it because it was his story. He also scored it, uh, did the music for it. Oh my gosh! And hired nine black crew members to be involved, which was insane for the time as well, even though it's the 60s, but it's like there was nobody on the Right, there's no, none. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Like you said, he opens the gates for this, and within a year, Melvin Van Peebles, who will get to him at the end with black exploitation, he directs a film for Columbia. So a, another director the very next year oh, in man. the game. So the door is um, opening. Wow, that's – God. <laughs> That's, that's and so then, fast that stuff happens. And then the next thing he gets to direct is Shaft in 1971. Wow. But where does – it seems like a complete shift in, in tone and style and, and subject matter. You yeah. Know? He's, he's doing this autobiographical thing <laughs> called The Learning Tree about his time in, in rural Kansas. And then you've got Shaft coming he's in. He's going to be an inner city cop. Yeah. The coolest inner city cop to ever walk the yeah. streets. The sexiest. <laughs> yeah. Takes no nonsense cop. So where does Shaft come from? Yeah, because this is a, a larger than life character. It did, you know, and, and it's so interesting to see how these things get amalgamated from different people and different things, but this is coming from a particular a particular place here. <laughs> so here's the story with this. I looked into it and I try to do as much research as I can you know, corroborating from multiple places. And on the Wikipedia page for Shaft, it says that originally the Shaft character was white. And then I went and found the book that it came from and it's not that re- – so then I stopped looking in that book and then I looked in other places and there were some <laughs> other articles that said that, but it's not true. It's not And true. I don't know – it's not true. So I don't know where that came from, but I think perhaps – so what the deal is, what is true is that the writer of the book Shaft was white. Oh, and the, which okay. is equally okay. as fascinating. But there's the, still a que- yeah. There's a there's almost equal question there, but it's definitely not ha- what's being presented. <laughs> right, Shaft was always what he is, but the the author Ernest Tidy Man is his name. Um, was a <laughs> so former cool. New York Times reporter. Yeah, what are the quotes from him? So he's not totally off base. He said, the idea came out of my awareness of both social and literary situations in a changing city because he lived in New York for so Mm. long. He said, there are winners, survivors and losers in the New York scheme of things. It was time for a black winner, whether he was a private detective Mm. or an obstetrician. So he did have the onus on it. Detroit, Houston. He was a police reporter. He was a journalist. He worked in men's magazines. He did it all. Ended up in Manhattan. I found a quote from him that was very similar to the quote with Gordon Parks about pictures. And Mm -hmm. Ernest Tidyman said, words are a licensed weapon and I never pull them out on people who aren't good adversaries. Uh. He makes the same distinction about your craft being the weapon that you use yes. on people. Yes, it's yes, fascinating. Yes. That they both had that mentality. And this this character Shaft that he came up with is not the first black detective and not even in film. Like there was a notable Sidney Poitier did uh, Virgil Tibbs from In the Heat of the Night in 65. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But nothing like Shaft. He was this gentlemanly right. character that, di- that didn't embody the same power that Shaft has. So here's how it got put together. 68, there was this editor from Macmillan, Alan Rinsler, who he he was the one that came up with the idea for a black detective hero. 
And he sent this idea to this literary agent, Ron Hobbs, who is the only African-American literary agent in New York City, hmm. thinking he was going to get an African-American writer. But this guy suggested this white writer, Ernest Tidyman. He had written a novel called Flower Power, which was about this runaway girl who joins a hippie camp, and it did poorly. Perfect. Because he Perfect. was just trying get him to on catch shaft. <laughs> with the, he was just trying to catch with the zeitgeist at the time. But the, he wrote a sample chapter, got the job, Appreciate finished it. it in July of '69. And so, like we said, he has kind of a dubious claim on the authenticity of Shaft, huh. but he does have the rich details yeah. of a of a man struggling in in 1970s New York City, and he was in the police. Beat. He could say wrong and right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he writes it. The book gets passed around and was picked up by MGM, who, like hmm. we said, they were struggling financially, looking mm-hmm. to produce a lower budget thing. They signed the deal before the novel even came out. And Whoa. then that's when they brought on Gordon Parks to direct. And Gordon Parks really transforms John Shaft from this tortured protagonist to kind of a superhero. Because I read the book, and it's much more like Good, if you listen okay. to our Die Hard episode, it's like he is this strug- not not that he's struggling, but it's like, you know, he's this mean, dark character with nothing to lose, and really, like, he's not the same suave, almost in a way what they did to James Bond as well. Right, right. Where the original character is much more gritty. Grizzle, and yeah. They, yeah, and they bump it up. And this is here, the creation of Shaft the movie. He's the first black action hero. Right. And who are they going to get to play this person? Well, they got somebody who had never acted Nobody. before. <laughs> They're like Richard Roundtree. We want a sure thing. <laughs> Pull him up. He's perfect. <laughs> no, I mean, I, <laughs> um, he beat out two hundred other potential John Shafts. Ooh. Like we said, his first feature film. Now he's been in, and I counted this up: seventy-four movies and wow. eighty-two TV shows. I mean, I mean, going through the 70s into the 80s, he's a household name after what happens here. I had no uh, inkling until we started researching this. This was his first role. He was making (laughs) minimum wage before, you know, like this is really it it all starts here. That is out of out. I've known of Shaft has been in my zeitgeist since I was probably eight years old. And that's probably not a great thing, but it's true. (laughs) So, But John Shaft is such an amazing character. It's hard to to imagine that this is handed to a complete unknown and that from that it explodes. I mean, it's similar. It's 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 king making like uh, like what happens a few years later in Star Wars with uh, all of those stars that I can't remember right now. But so one of the one of the people, like we said, he's a nobody. One of the people who wanted to audition, who said, "Give me a chance, and I'll do the music," is Isaac Hayes. Yes, um, but they had already cast Richard, so he never even got to audition. But he still kept up his side and was like, "Well, I'll do the music." Boy, he ends up doing the soundtrack. It won two Grammys and an Academy Award for Best Original Song which he is the first black person in history to win as a composer and the third to win any Oscar. So that is really the, and, and to, to go back to, to parks, really breaking down the door for the industry here. There it is. There's your first Oscar for a non-acting uh, representative mm-hmm. role there. This is a technical role. This is a, and, and, and it gave us one of the most in, uh, iconic scores of cinema history. <laughs> we'll put Hands links down. to the, to the music. Yeah. Where he came from, Isaac Hayes, his big song, if you had to pick one, was Soul Man, first performed by Sam and Dave, mm. which I didn't I didn't know that. And I then he also, for those that are 
less culturally inclined, maybe, or more, he voiced a chef in South Park. Yeah. Yeah. And a few weeks after the film release, the soundtrack had earned $2 million and gone platinum. Like you said, it's a staple of 70s music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Staple. And uh, <laughs> mirror here with uh, Superfly, the underbelly answer to Shaft, where Shaft, Shaft is the cool cop keeping it together, flying off the handle a little bit. This is the criminal who has it all that is trying to make his his final getaway. And this film comes out right after Shaft, and it has an amazing score that also gets nominated for everything and has stood the test of time as one of the most influential scores of all time, Superfly. <laughs> I think the score for Superfly almost transcends the film. It can't be overstated what Shaft does and what Gordon Parks did for uh, yeah. African-Americans in, in Hollywood, period. Yeah. One of the other ones being Hugh Robertson, who edited. He was not for Shaft, but he was the first black editor nominated for an Oscar for Midnight Cowboy. Wow. But he was also on this yes. production. Yes. Um, so it all gets made, like I said, one of only three profitable movies for MGM was an astonishing 13 million on a budget of 500,000 to about a million which is the the return is close to 90 million nowadays the author of the book who wrote the screenplay as well he left after the second book slash film and so he wrote more hoping that MGM would option them but they didn't so he wrote seven shaft novels in total wow that are out there because it was interesting when you're talking about the the character Ernest was not happy with the politicization of the film and I guess they said his feelings was that he had written it as a detective novel, not a black power tome, because the plot does focus on these mafia groups, not necessarily race. And there are still these militant groups, but it's more to service the plot. And Shaft is not even really in the mix. Like he doesn't even live in Harlem. He's outside of it all, <sighs> which still goes into the plot of the movie. But he was coming from a place of this editor told him to write this book. And so he got paid. He didn't have the same visual and cultural right, sensibility right, right. that the movie does. Right, by right, right. It was time for a black oh. man to win, but it wasn't time to like totally rewrite the system. <laughs> I guess you know, and he didn't know it. Uh, well, yeah. but and, and and you know what? I mean, good for him for seeing the door. You know, the door there. I mean, it's it's obvious the character transcended uh, everybody mm -hmm. there. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. It, to take an exit and go, wow. I mean, he's he's going to be tied to the to the to the rights to it for to the end of time. Uh, so mm -hmm. the other, the interesting thing that on the flip side, there's the criticism also to Gordon Parks saying it doesn't deal with black life in serious terms. Mm. Like it gets the opposite criticism. <laughs> like it's not, it's not serious enough because uh, Parks had responded to this criticism. He wrote a letter to the editor in the New York Times, said, "Quote: Most black critics have lauded the film for its portrayal of Shaft as a strong black hero." I share Riley's desire to see black actors playing roles now assumed by actors such as Jack Nicholson or Dustin Hoffman, but I don't think the choice for black people is limited to either Five Easy Pieces or Step and Fetch It, which mm. just meaning like we can be all roles. We don't have to be the most dramatic thing or the most right. stereotypical thing. Step and Fetch It was, which was a stage name, he was considered the first black actor to have any successful film career. This is from the 20s and 30s. He was the first black actor to become a millionaire. He played the, quote, laziest man in the world characters, you know, the, the more harmful tropes. But some people now in modern criticism say it's kind of like a, a trickster archetype where it's like, well, he was getting paid. Like right. he was, and even his, his, uh, his character was like, I'm going to pretend to be the laziest guy, but actually 
I'm winning in right. this yeah. in this game, you know, like he very was, interesting. Like the conversation that comes up in Black and um, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That's almost mm-hmm. exactly what becomes a central conflict there of, about the musicians who's playing whose game, um, yeah. who's getting. It, it, uh, that's a, that's very interesting. So this is like, what is this? What does Shaft do as a movement? And we mentioned it already, but black exploitation as a genre, what does that even mean? Derivation of the word exploitation, well, I didn't really, I mean, I thought I knew what it was, but I guess- uh, Right, I've, it's definitely one of those, yeah, I assume, yeah. you know. The dictionary definition, attempting to succeed financially by exploiting trends, niches, or lewd content, which is usually what it gets lumped into, like uh, Grindhouse, which is the uh, theater yeah, stuff. Yeah, but you yeah. know, like very much just like shock, but it's not necessarily bad. It's more about the perception from the viewers and even the content codes at the time and the cultural presence around it. So like a clockwork orange would have been considered an exploitation film in a different context or like certain films in Europe that are made would be considered an art film. And then certain films that are made in the U S would be a horror film, but flipped they're exploitative. So it it depends a lot on the perception of the viewers. So black exploitation came about in the early seventies with shaft. It was popular for the time, Matt, obviously, because it made a bunch of money and people went to go see it. But it also suffered the backlash for the stereotypes, the questionable motives of making it. But on the plus side, it was also the first in which black characters and communities are the heroes and the subjects and not the right. side characters, the victims, or the villains. And if you haven't seen Shaft, and the trend of these things, like Evan said, with Superfly as well, it takes place in urban neighborhoods. It's a bold genre statement, whatever genre it's in, whether it's detective, Western, thriller, all of that, utilizes violence, sex, drugs to provoke the audience. That's the exploitative part of it. It's Um, like a strange Rorschach test because it's presenting presenting realities. I mean, it really is. These, These are, to an extent, uh, representations of realities of people who are making this thing, who are writing this, thing, all, 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 all hands involved. People have lived some of the, some parts of these. These are real things, uh, and may be shocking, and it may not be what you think a movie is. That's kind I'll of presented. The point. To what the do extreme. you think about this? What is your reaction to you? Why is that? Why do you have that reaction? To understand, peel back the human, the human element of this, and it's it's very interesting to see how intrinsic the reaction is to black exploitation. Mm-hmm. Are you are you acquainted enough here to even get behind the narrative of the film? It's it's definitely uh, it's it's quite uh, multifaceted. I would yes. say is the way, yes. like you said, abortion. It's like, what are you seeing? <laughs> when you put this Ex- up on exactly. the screen. It's, it's hard to sum up. I'm like, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. the more I talk about a lot of words, I'm like, it, it really is. That's the best I can say is, is like a Well, that's where that's, yeah, that's where it's like, like I said, like the, the paradoxical duality of it, which is why, I mean, I just learned about it this week, so I can't speak authoritatively about it. And that's it, us every people, week, Taylor. And we just yeah. got very- <laughs> <laughs> We're just learning along with you. So some people hold that it's like, oh, this is a token of black empowerment. Look right. at all that it did. And then other people are like, no, it perpetuates white stereotypes about black people. And, Where I've, does it and I'm gonna, I've had this yeah. conversation. I think I've had a conversation like this about uh, how, where to just put it in a different context, uh, where Jackie Kennedy stands in, in, feminis, in feminism. Uh, how much good did it do? How much, how much good did she do opposed to how much uh, opportunity she had? And my argument here is that it, you don't win all at once. You don't 
just out of nowhere have all the answers and everything is just and right and perfect. The people that are in the positions to take these opportunities by the wings, they have to, at some, at some level, play the game. And it's about exactly what we're talking about with those roles. Uh, it's yeah. Whose game are you playing? Uh, are, is this a win for you? Because history is going to be the judge for all of this stuff. So d- are you smart enough to take the win where you can get it to inch that the, f- the front of this war a little bit forward? That's what it's well, about. I think what's claiming new ground yeah. step by step. And as things progress with black exploitation, like the the thing with Shaft, the, what I could see that's different is like instead of glorifying a tough gangster or a pimp, Shaft is the hero who stands up for the black community. He derides the man, both black and white. He woos the ladies. He wins at the end, and he's a detective. Versus like as black exploitation progresses, you have like you said, Superfly, the Mac, Willie Dynamite. This was what popularizes the pimp persona. And that's the criticism is like, this is to the detriment of the black community and it's to the detriment of black Hollywood because it's like, what happened after that? Did it get like Gordon Parks got nine people on his crew? Like what happened after that? Did this actually do what it set out to do? Right. So I thought it was interesting because so Spike Lee was listening to an interview with him. There was a coalition against black exploitation that helped contribute to the genre's end as well, because people are seeing like, maybe this isn't what we thought it was being anymore. And then Spike Lee was saying the industry was also at a turning point in the mid-70s where Jaws, Star Wars coming out, black folks are going to go see it. So he's saying, well, they didn't have to make films for a niche anymore, and it would just be this big blockbuster production. Right. And we don't have to have these segments that we're making films for specifically. Mm. Um, but then it comes, kind of comes back in a way because in the eighties and nineties, Spike Lee, John Singleton, Alan and Albert Hughes, the films do the right thing. Boys in the hood menace to society. They focus on black urban life, use black exploitation elements. But the thing they're doing is incorporating criticism of the glorification of the stereotypical behavior Mm -hmm. in those films. So that is kind of where it stands. And then the, the modern homages to it, Quentin Tarantino is notably inspired by it in Jackie Brown, Undercover Brother is a parody, and then Black Klansman to a degree, one could say, is an homage by Spike Lee. So the sequels, though, this film didn't just stand on its own. It had other things, and that's what Evan has seen. But straight away, they made Shaft's big score and Shaft in Africa, which Gordon Parks composed the music for, and then that was the end of the, the 70s shaft trilogy and they came out going Uh, and then this is gonna be a running theme here with me but i you know looking back i'm like why 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 couldn't we keep going with what i don't know i and i need to go through them all and i admittedly have not seen the original shaft i grew up with the 2000 samuel jackson version the john singleton version i grew up with that and it holds a nostalgic place in my heart because of when i when i saw it like i said i was probably like eight years old and should not have seen that movie at that time. don't blame anybody <laughs> right. I, I was probably my older brother that gave me the tape or something but it, it, that's what i grew up on and i've seen now the uh the new sequel to that film which takes it in a whole different direction uh the 2019 shaft so this is a generational affair here folks yeah well for our audience just so the first three films are characterized by their black exploitation characteristics while the fourth installment the 2000 version is a more crime thriller and then the fifth entry the 2019 version is a satirical buddy cop comedy <laughs> which seems sort of strange 
There was also a doomed TV miniseries that got canceled, but we don't even. No, oh, I didn't even know that. that. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this is where it became. But it's kind of interesting how it how it builds. The the two thousands film, uh, which I I recommend highly. It, it tries to, I guess contextualize all of the tropes of the originals into a modern day cinema thriller. It presents this, uh, this character who's no longer a part of the police force uh, where this bruised and battered woman comes in and says that she's been told to talk to John Shaft and only John Shaft. And he tries to blow her off. Here's my lieutenant that we've gotten to, tries to give him to her. Uh, no, no, no. John Shaft is right here. And we get this idea that after you, after she tells her story, just a bit of her story that he's, there's no way he's not going to be able, he's not going to help this woman. And that, that probably is his lot in life going forward, whether he rejoins the police force, who opens up his own PI, uh, or he just does this on his mano a mano on the street. He's going to be a beacon for the community for right and good in, 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 in whatever small or big way he is. And that, and I think that's kind yeah. of it is where we, as the audience mystify him and make him into this big, amazing action hero where he would laugh. He would, he would, you know, if you were to talk to the character, he'd probably laugh. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm nothing. I'm just me. I'm, and this is what I do. Uh, yeah. I, I, that would be, that's how I read into it is that he's going to, he's just a beacon for good. Um, and he's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's all of it, and that's all there is to it. I think there's one other piece that I just I found. could I could watch him hunt down uh, uh, like abusive men all day and long. And I just I mean, right off the off the bat, I, I I I just saw. Oh man, there's easy sequels here of, of all sorts of stories that could be told about about the black community. All sorts of things that we don't know. I don't know the the, the interesting stories that I think deserve to be told could be told, and I think John Shaft could be used just like the character, like. Um, Along came a spider. The the Morgan Freeman. Uh, the, he's the detective character that runs through the '90s and into the 2000s. Uh, I, yeah. I would I could have used maybe some of that vibe with John Shaft, but telling me maybe more black centered uh, stories. Uh, I, I I don't know. I thought, I thought there was an avenue for that, and I'm kind of sad now looking back after 20 years that, that there's only this one sequel to it in 2019 that exists for very different reasons. Yeah. Well, let me give you some hope here as well as our final no, uh, piece no. of the puzzle. <laughs> no. Um, so in 2014, this guy, David Walker, uh, approached Ernest Tidyman's widow and secured the rights. He He's a, a graphic novelist. And so he created a six-issue miniseries comic book that uh, depicted the early days of Shaft as a detective. And like you're hoping for, it's this rare prequel that works on its own terms rather than answering questions no one asked about yes. how he got his name or you know stuff <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. where'd he get uh, his gun <laughs> and just this is a quote from david walker because he was not into shaft being a comedy from 2019 but okay aside from that he was saying quote not since the 1960s has there been more of a need for a black action hero one that can provide a cathartic escape from life's day-to-day -day horrors and deliver the sort of wish fulfillment that cinema is intended to do not since ernest tidyman created john shaft back in the 70s has there been more of a need for someone just like him mm. um but just as a last little bit of the of the ending thing it's like he's also often compared to james bond in terms of like you said his sexiness his suaveness definitely his, his no nonsense attitude and they were saying if james bond can survive moonraker and the various <laughs> incarnations crazy james bond stuff then surely shaft can survive this oh 
Oh, well, th- to bring it up, I mean, the 2019 version, I did not expect it to be a comedy. And it's pretty quickly uh, set up that it's a comedy. And it took me really off guard. It seemed to evolve as the film started s- presenting itself, why it exists, its thesis. That may be perhaps a comedy is the only way to get this across. Because what the 2019 version serves to do is comment on the generational aspect of this and 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 kind of a referendum to a degree on masculinity as a whole in the modern era taking shaft as its example uh, is yeah. does it does it work i don't know i don't i don't love it but i certainly understand, understand yeah. what it's trying to do and why it was made and i think that goes to say more than a lot of movies you might compare it to right now that would be you know kind of rehashed based on a 40 year property yeah yeah so it's interesting um, to yeah to throw it on decade by decade and it's like check out the one from 71 check out the one from 2000 check out the one from 2019 it's like there's a 30 and a 20 year difference between them what does that say generationally and culturally and and that's that's an interesting reason to make a movie it's been 20 years since since the last one to take that character and to talk about masculinity on a generational scale like that really interesting um but personally i i I can't recommend the 2000s runs enough (laughs) i think the film is really successful i wish that uh, they had seen more more avenue there for more things maybe it was just a bit ahead of its time maybe that's always been the curse with shaft it it has to bore (laughs) the forefront of it and it doesn't reap the rewards on the back end but hey maybe the tide's turning because you're blowing my mind with this series some sort of ah (laughs) that that would be really great because this is this this character is fertile i think i think he could not be more right well, let us know if you have seen any of the Shaft movies, whether you love them, hate them, what they've done for you. Please what did we get wrong? Yeah. Ring us over the coals. At <laughs> uh, Illiterate Pod on Instagram is how you can reach us. We're going to be doing black artists, creators, film literature all, all month of February. So if you have any suggestions, please send us a message. Uh, we'd love to hear what you want to hear. Thank you so much. Thank you.